Well, good morning once again, everyone. I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church. I forgot, did I turn this on? Yeah. Yes, it is on. Okay. I'm just talking to Bryce. Bryce is here and his wife, Allison. Uh, Carrie and uh, Ryan and Jacob, whom you just saw in video, uh, they are not here this morning. That was actually recorded on Wednesday. Uh, I want to say thank you to all of those guys for coming and putting that together for us. I know it's been a lot of extra work for Carrie over these last several weeks, but um, I, I hope you were blessed by that and sort of saw a little bit of the intentionality behind what Carrie had planned for us. We have this morning already sung of the greatness of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, we've been celebrating the Trinity together already, and I hope that your perspective has already been lifted from circumstances and self and the things of the world to focus on our God who is worthy of praise, whose grace is sufficient, who, though we are scattered, his spirit is here with us. He is with you, present now, as the word is opened and as it is preached. And so I trust that as those who belong to Christ, as those who are trusting in his gospel, as those who want to follow Christ and be like him, that your heart is eager and prepared uh, to dive into the word together. So let's go ahead and turn to James chapter 4 this morning. Uh, turn to James chapter 4. Our text for this morning is verses 11 through 12. In James chapter 4, we've been dealing with the issue of conflict with others. Uh, verses 1 through 3, as we saw last week, tells us that the source of our conflict with other people is the selfish desires, those passions that rule uh, our hearts. Um, but James warns us, he tells us that these passions, these selfish desires, earn the opposition of God. Uh, as he tells us, God opposes the proud in verse 6, but gives grace to the humble. So verses 6 through 10 calls us to a change of heart. A change of heart, that's repentance. We looked at that last week. And now in verses 11 through 12, James continues by calling not only for a change of heart towards God, but also a change of action towards others, a change in our behavior. Let's read together James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. James writes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Lord, we have celebrated this morning your glory and power, your ongoing ministry to us through your spirit, and the confidence that we have in your son, <clears throat> Jesus Christ. It is because of his death and resurrection that we have life. It is because of the forgiveness found in him that we can stand before you. And Lord, it is because of our desire to follow him and become like him that we now want to submit ourselves to the teaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would illuminate the truth and convict us of sin. And Lord, bring about the process of change in us, the process of change that you purposed before time began, the process of change that leads us to perfectly reflect the image of Christ. Lord, do your work now. We humbly submit ourselves to you, and we depend now on the power of your spirit as you open your word to us. Amen. James's point in these two verses, verses 11 through 12, is that humble faith, genuine faith, the kind of faith that this book calls us to, that this kind of humble faith will keep us 
from sinfully speaking against one another. Humble faith keeps us from sinfully speaking against one another. It's going to be the mark of genuine faith, the mark of spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness, that we not speak against each other in a sinful way. Now, it is essential at all times, in any text, but also in this text, that we rightly interpret and understand the Scripture. Only when Scripture is rightly understood can it be rightly believed and therefore appropriately applied to our lives. So we need to take care this morning to make sure that we know exactly what James is meaning when he says not to speak against a brother or to judge your neighbor because there's different ways that those words can be understood and not all of them are correct. The word translated to speak evil against here in the ESV, the word that's translated slander in some versions, it is the sin of defaming other people, of putting them down, of wrongly criticizing them or smearing them with your words. It is a critical spirit that finds fault with others and then maliciously shares those conclusions with other people. And it has to do especially, I think, with assessing the motives and, and judging uh, the intentions and the heart of other people. This word is used two other times in the New Testament, and they're both found in, verse, in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, there's that idea, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It is understood that we as Christians will experience slander. We will be judged. We will be spoken against. We will experience false accusations and even bitter criticisms from outside, from the world. Um, Jesus did, and those who follow Jesus will expect to receive the same. That's just par for the course. But Scripture is clear that malicious speech of this kind, though it comes from the outside, it should not be found in the church. It should not be given a place in our lives, and our hearts. 1 Peter 2 verse 1 says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We are to put it away, to put it away. Why is it that we speak evil against or slander or judge our brothers and sisters in Christ? What is it that causes this kind of behavior? Well, I think there's several reasons. There's, there's even more than this. I'll just share a couple. But I think one motive might be a desire for revenge. Perhaps you want to put somebody else in their place because of what they did to you. Sort of fighting fire with fire and giving the same that you've gotten from others. For some, what, what compels this evil speech against others, this slander, is really just a proud, self, uh, a proud sense of self-righteousness. Thinking that you're better than others. You compare yourselves to other people and sort of elevate yourself by putting them down. At times, I think it's a, a spirit of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James mentioned this in chapter 3, verse 14, and says that this, that this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is really at the root of the disorder and the conflict that we experience in the church. Those who have this jealousy or selfish ambition cut others down in order to advance themselves. It's an agenda. But sadly, I think for some... This kind of behavior, this kind of speech, this criticism and condemnation of others, this slander, is simply the sinful pleasure that comes from gossip and sharing secrets with others. Some people simply have nothing better to do. 
And so they get their kicks and find their entertainment out of talking about other people behind their backs. And there's more reasons you could find, but, but all, of, all of these compel people to put other people down with their words, to condemn them, to sinfully speak against them. But James firmly commands us not to engage in this behavior. If you'll notice in verse 11, three times he called his, calls his readers brothers. He calls us brothers. And he's emphasizing that this is not the way family should treat each other. Verbally abusing one another in this way denies the true nature of our bond in Christ and our relationship with one another. And this is simply not how God's children should act. We would do well to remember our relationship to one another as fellow children who've been bought by the blood of Christ. And that has ethical implications for how we treat each other. So James exhorts us, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. But we need to clarify this morning, not just what James is saying, but also what he's not saying. James is not saying that we should never call out sin in the life of a believer or that that we should never even confront or rebuke a person for their disobedience to Christ. In fact, that's exactly what James is doing in much of this letter. James even uses strong language. He hasn't pulled any punches here in this book. He has called those people who ride the fence, spiritually speaking, double-minded He has called those who show partiality judges with evil thoughts and labeled them as transgressors. He has called the one who trusts in his dead faith a foolish person. And even last week we saw that James calls those who are ruled by their passions adulterers and adulteresses and even enemies of God. Not only has James addressed sin very directly, But he also calls us to do it as well. We haven't got there yet, but in chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, there's a place for recognizing the error of our brothers and addressing that error for the sake of bringing them back to Christ. Notice the difference here between the right approach to addressing sin and the wrong approach to addressing sin. The difference is that slander and sinful judgment comes from a heart that is filled with pride, jealousy, selfish ambition. But biblical rebuke and necessary correction offered in love, that is always appropriate and not just appropriate, necessary necessary if we're going to follow Christ and and become more like him and faithfully love our brothers and sisters in the church. This kind of rebuke and correction is always intended to restore and to build up and to protect. This is different than sinful speech that's intended to damage and destroy. Many people are familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. I think it's probably the verse that I hear unbelievers quote more than any other verse in the Bible. Judge not that you be not judged. Maybe you've heard someone quote that to you when you've brought up a concern. But many people fail to understand the context of that passage, not to get too far away from James, but I really wanna make sure we understand uh, how to rightly apply this text. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is rebuking those people who are hypocritical, those who ignore the log in their own eye while pointing out the speck in their brother's eye. So Jesus is instructing us to deal with our own issues first. And then Jesus says, we can help our brother remove the speck in his eye. 
So the issue here is not pointing out a problem. The issue is pointing out a problem hypocritically, judging others by a standard we don't hold ourselves to. And Jesus says, if that's the case, you have a bigger problem to deal with than your brother's issue. You need to take care of business at home. The same Jesus who spoke these words in Matthew chapter 7, judge not, that you be not judged. He also said the words found in John chapter 7, verse 24. In John 7, 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We are called to render right judgment as Christians. There is a kind of judgment that is right and necessary. And then there's also a kind of judgment that is sinful and hypocritical. So we are called as believers to humbly practice the right kind of judgment and to obediently forsake the sinful kind of judgment. So I know we've sort of been bouncing around to several different texts. All that is intended to lay the groundwork so that we can rightly read and understand and apply this text. James chapter 4 verses 11 through 12. And here in this text, James not only gives us the command not to speak against a brother, but he also gives us some compelling reasons why we should not do such things. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at today. Let's look at two reasons together why slander is unacceptable for those who claim faith in Christ. Two reasons. And the first is this. It's found in verse 11. Number one, slandering others hypocritically disregards the law. Slandering others hypocritically disregards the law. James writes in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And here he gives this reason. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Ultimately, whether people recognize it or not, we are all of us accountable to the word of God. We are accountable. James refers to scripture in his book as the word of truth in chapter 1, verse 18, as the perfect law, the law of liberty in chapter 1, verse 25, and declares that it is this word that is able to save our souls. But speaking against a brother, James says, hypocritically disregards this law, and it does so in several ways. First of all, to slander a brother disregards, or rather it does what the law forbids, and in that way it disregards the law. It, it violates it. It does what the law forbids. The Old Testament is full of prohibitions and warnings about this sin, about slander, about condemning others with our speech and maliciously destroying them with our words. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. That's black and white. And it's grounded in the authority and the power of God himself. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1 through 3 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 10, verse 18, whoever utters slander is a fool. 
a fool. Speaking against a brother in a malicious way to undermine his reputation and inflict injury on him is just flat out disobedience. And God forbids this kind of verbal violence because it is evil, it is foolish, and it will incur judgment. This is the clear teaching of God's word. So when you slander a brother or a sister, you are breaking God's law, therefore disregarding it. You are denigrating its value. James says, whoever does this, verse 11, speaks evil against the law, devaluing it, minimizing it, treating it as insignificant. That's speaking against the law. By such actions, we're declaring that we think the law is either wrong or it's unnecessary. And that is speaking evil against the law. So slandering others hypocritically disregards the law, first of all, by doing what the law forbids, but secondly, it ignores the essence of what the law commands. James adds the term judge here. Whoever, whoever speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. James adds this term judge here not because he's trying to prohibit um, civil courts or to prohibit wise discernment among believers, Rather, James is trying to root out the harsh, unkind, critical spirit. He's getting at the heart, the judgmental heart that constantly finds fault with others. It's this judgmental spirit that leads to speaking against others and violating the law. As Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the heart, the heart and the tongue go hand in hand. But again, Scripture calls us to love our brother. And love is a command that is obeyed first of all in the heart, and that is demonstrated, secondly, by our actions and by our words. Scripture calls us to love our brother, not to condemn him in our hearts. And if we love our brother, we will find it easy to speak in ways that build him up rather than in ways that tear him down. Jesus really epitomized the law, summarized it in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Someone asked him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We learn from Jesus that to love one another is the essence of the law. That's the law codified. Um, it's love applied to every part of life. Not loving others by slandering them and condemning them is really to violate the very essence of this law. James calls it the royal law and reminds us that breaking it in one point is to violate the whole of it. You might think, why is it such a big deal if I say something? It's just words. But James 2 verses 8 through 10 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And really, that's what happens when you speak against someone, when you slander, when you gossip, when you condemn them wrongly. It is violating the essence of the law. It's accusing their motives, needlessly sharing negative and damaging conclusions, that's a failure to love, a failure to show love as we ought. 
Speaking against a brother doesn't build them up like love does. It tears them down. It does not wash their feet as love ought to. Rather, it slings mud. It does not lovingly serve them as Christ calls us to do. Rather, it injures them. It doesn't seek their joy. It rather contributes to their sorrow. And it shows that we're not concerned with meeting their needs. Rather, we're just jockeying for social position. Rather than seeking to edify them, we're justifying ourselves. And God's word says that this is not the way that we are to treat one another. We are to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Speaking against a brother and judging him is wrong because it does what God forbids, breaking the law, but it also fails to do what God commands. It misses the essence of the law. It's a failure to obey. But there's a third way in which this kind of sin disregards God's law. And that is this. It's a proud expression of superiority. An expression of superiority. We see this at the end of verse 11. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Some of you will remember this. Some of us are too young. But on August 8th, 1975, then President uh, Richard Nixon resigned amidst controversy um, because he was under threat of impeachment. And he was famously interviewed by a columnist from the New York Times two years later. And he answered a question about his integrity in this way. He, He was asked about his behavior. And he said this, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. When the president does it, that means it's not illegal. What he was saying was that he saw himself as above the law. And sadly, this sentiment can be shared by Christians when it comes to obeying God's word. However high a view we may claim to have of scripture, failing to do it shows that we don't really take it that seriously. We see ourselves as above the law, that we are an exception to the rule. Remember what was said earlier in this book about being a doer of the word and not just a hearer? James brings that that idea back to us again, that we are to be doers of the law, not judges of the law. In verse 11, James argues that if you're willing to break the law, but you're using the law to condemn other people, then it shows that you think you're really above the law. That's his argument, that you think you can sit above scripture and use it to evaluate everyone else around you. And such an attitude of superiority just shows pride. That's pride in the heart. Matthew 15, 19 through 20 says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus says these are what defile a person. Slander comes from the heart, from pride, from pride. This is a proud expression of superiority that invites God's opposition. Remember, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. John MacArthur writes this. He says, by such fearful disrespect, the sinner judges the law as unworthy of his attention, affection, obedience, submission, all of which is blasphemy against God. Experiencing victory over slander requires us to take our proper place under the law's authority. And I think he's exactly right with that assessment. Again, James is not prohibiting the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise, nor is he prohibiting uh, or forbidding the rights of the believing community, the church, to exercise church discipline I mean, those things are necessary. Um, nor is he telling us that we cannot determine what is right and wrong by applying scripture in our community. Rather, James is simply reminding us of our place, that it is our responsibility to sit under 
the law. Paul really taught the same thing. In Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13, Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Slandering others is wrong because it hypocritically disregards the law of God. It does what the law forbids. It ignores the essence of the law and is a proud expression of superiority, acting as if you are above the law. But there's a second reason James gives us why we must not speak against a brother. We see this in verse 12, and it's this. Slandering others arrogantly disregards the lawgiver. It arrogantly disregards the lawgiver. So it's a hypocritical uh, dismissal of the law, disregarding the law. But even worse, it arrogantly disregards the lawgiver. Look in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James says when we speak evil against each other, we've become not doers of the law, but judges of the law. And that is not our place. It's not our place. He asks us a penetrating question at the end of verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, the word of God reveals there is one judge. And James reminds us that you are not him. I am not him. Jesus is the one and only judge. And he is able to save and destroy. James, by by pointing out that Jesus is able to save and destroy, is pointing to the fact that Christ is the only one qualified to be the judge. His fitness to judge is rooted in who he is. It is rooted in his glorious power. Jesus alone, for example, has the power to save. He is able to save. You aren't, and I'm not, but Jesus is. Any who enter glory will be there, will enter into heaven one day, not because we have kept the law, but because Jesus had power to save us. We will be there because his righteous life and his sacrificial death have opened the door to sinners like us for salvation. It is his spirit that convicts us of our need and opens our eyes for the gospel. It is his grace that softens our heart and even empowers our faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus is able to save, but he is also able to destroy. Jesus is able to condemn rebels to the eternal judgment of hell. He will say to some on that day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Those who reject Jesus Christ will be judged. There is no escape. They will not be able to overcome his judgment. Those who ignore him will be judged one day. Those who relied on their own goodness or power will be judged one day. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is able to save and destroy, which is why he is the judge and we are not. When you get to the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, we discover that there is only one who is worthy to open the scroll, the scroll that contains judgment for the unbelieving world. 
And the one who is worthy to open the scroll, to break those seals, is none other than the Lamb. It is Jesus Christ, the eternal judge. We are manifestly unqualified to be the judge. You see, Jesus is all-knowing, and we are not. We don't have the ability to see all things and know all things. You and I don't have the ability to look into someone's heart and to see exactly who they are and what their motives are, what they have done. But Jesus does. Jesus does have that ability. Not only that, Jesus is perfectly holy. His judgments are perfectly righteous. His judgments are never tainted by the slightest trace of sin. But even our best judgments are corrupted by our own sin. Our motives are always suspect, but Jesus is holy, the perfect, righteous judge. In addition, Jesus has the perfect wisdom with which to judge. He perceives and understands at a level that we cannot. If the ancient people marveled at the wisdom of Solomon as he sat on the throne of Israel and and rendered judgment, how much more will we marvel at the wisdom of Christ on the day of judgment? Truly, as Luke eleven thirty one 31 says, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is able to judge. And it is finally his right to judge since he is both the creator of the world and owner of all things and the king over all. He has the right and the authority to judge. You and I simply don't. We have no right to sit above the law, to sit above our brothers, but Jesus does. Jesus is the law giver. Jesus is the law fulfiller. And Jesus will be the law enforcer on that day of judgment. Who are you, James says, to judge your neighbor? There is only one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Here's what that means for us, for you and me is that we have no right to condemn a brother. We are not the judge. My friend, it is not you that people have to answer to. We may need to say hard things at times. We may need to offer correction or warning or counsel or rebuke. We may need to confront sin. We may need to say hard things, but we can never say them in a hard way. God has all the facts and he will bring everything to light one day And we must not be so arrogant as to try to take his job and to render judgment, to destroy another person with our words. Though at times we may be God's messengers who are called to declare and apply his word, including when it calls out sin, we must remember that God, through his son Jesus Christ, will one day render the final judgment. And that's simply not our place. The Christian worldview is not one, as much as people want it to be. The Christian worldview is not a worldview that is void of judgment, as much as some people think it should be. Rather, we understand that judgment belongs to God. And this judgment is, in fact, imminent for all, both for those who are wrongly condemned and for those who offer that wrong condemnation. There is a judgment coming. It is imminent for all of us. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Judgment day is coming. James 5, 9, it warns us that the judge is standing at the door. It is imminent. And James's pastoral point for us this morning is that we simply need to remember which side of the bar we stand on. We are those who will be 
judge, not those who are to offer judgment. The reason why people speak against others and slander others, condemn others with a critical spirit, always finding fault, is because they've forgotten their place. And doing this is sure to invite the opposition of the God who resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is no mark of humility to sit above the law and to take the place of the judge. Our job is to be doers of the law. James says that. We are not to be doers, or we're not to be judges of the law, but to be doers of the law. That is our responsibility. In even the language James uses here at the end of verse 12, he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? He sort of switches from this brother language to neighbor language. Again, he's echoing the second greatest commandment. If you're really serious about the law, you really care about right and wrong, then you will put your effort into making sure that you are obeying this command to love your neighbor as yourself. We'll recognize that we are not the judge. Rather, we're called to love. So how do we respond to this text this morning? I want to give you just a couple points of application this morning. First of all, if this has exposed sinful speech or a heart of condemnation and judgment in you, then you need to repent of your sinful words and your sinful attitude and put on love. Very simple. We are to turn from this kind of sinful behavior, renounce it, lay it aside, and, and resolve to submit ourselves to Christ and put on love. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, ultimately, the issue at hand is always our hearts. It's not just about keeping your mouth shut. It's about keeping your heart in the right place. You can't help but evaluate life around you. That's not wrong. And we're even called to be wise and discerning in that way. But we must evaluate life around us, the people around us, in a humble and right manner, with forgiveness and love, humility, and compassion. Rather than speaking against others, we must acknowledge our own obligation to obey the word and submit humbly and at times quietly to the one who is the judge. A second point of application is this. Do not listen to slander. Obviously, you can control what comes out of your mouth, but what about when other people are engaging this kind of sinful behavior? Don't be party to it. Don't listen to slander or gossip. Don't allow others to condemn others in your hearing and go along with that. It's not going to help you. If you're trying to love other people and not be judgmental, it's not going to help you if you listen to other people who are. Um, this is especially true in the age of the internet because communication is just so prevalent. There's so many opportunities. Um, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and we could add to that. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth types or posts videos or whatever you may, you may say. But the reality is this. Proverbs 20 verse 19 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. Some of you need to draw some lines. Some of you need to establish some boundaries and not listen to slander, not allow it to enter into your ears because it's going to infect your heart. It's going to place a bias there against your brother that doesn't need to be there. Again, there's a difference between wise counsel and faithful application of scripture and slander. This doesn't mean we don't listen to counsel or seek discerning insight from others. 
but it does mean that when it is clear that someone else is simply out to destroy and condemn, and there is malice and pride in their hearts, we should never listen to such speech and communication. We need to avoid and not associate with such people. We need to humbly lay our opinions at the foot of Christ and admit that our knowledge is imperfect and our perspective is limited and our perceptions may be flawed. So ultimately, we are unworthy to sit as judge and so are the other people around us. Third, I want to encourage you this morning to focus on the mercy and grace of Christ in the gospel. Focus on the truths of the gospel. If you're someone who struggles with a heart that is critical and condemns other people, if you're someone who struggles with words that destroy others, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Our wonder at God's grace towards us, the the, the way that that should cause us to marvel that God would love us because we know who we are. And the reality is God knows who we are. He sees our sin even more clearly than we do. Yet he has loved us, pursued us, forgiven us, and drawn us to himself and, and granted us approval, granted us the blessing of being his children. As we look at the cross and understand God's grace there, the wonder at God's grace towards us ought to overshadow any, per, any outrage at the perceived faults of others. It ought to be a bigger deal to us that God loves us and forgives us than the fact that some other people may have some issues. When the gospel softens and humbles us, it's going to change the way we see the perceived faults and failures of our brothers because we will be in awe of what God has done for us. It'll humble us and it will enable us to respond to others around us with compassion rather than condemnation with humility rather than pride, with love instead of judgment. If you're someone who struggles with this, you need to remember Christ. Consider what he's done for you and allow his grace to soften and convict and to change your heart. And just one final word. I want to say this to some of you who may have been victims of this kind of sin. You have been condemned by others. You've been wrongly judged by others. You've had people spread false accusations against you. What should you do if you've experienced at the hands of others this kind of sin? I just want to remind you of a couple comforting truths. Remember that Jesus experienced slander. So did Paul. So did the other faithful believers in that day. You're in good company. You're in good company and your experience is not foreign. Your experience is not surprising. In fact, we're told that we're going to experience these kinds of things. Jesus even says, blessed are you when men speak evil of you and revile you. For my namesake, great is your reward in heaven. Take comfort in that. If you've been wrongly accused, if you've been wrongly condemned and judged. And I also want to to encourage you with this. Consider that Jesus doesn't just understand because he's experienced that, but Jesus is for you. He is for you. Even if other people are against you, you have a high priest. You have an advocate. You have the best attorney who's ever lived. You have Jesus Christ, the faithful and true judge who knows all the facts of the case and who has, who has a hearing with his father to stand and give the final word. Really, the word devil, the, the, how we often refer to Satan, that word devil means slanderer, the accuser of the brothers. That's what he does But Jesus is the one who pleads our case for us. He's on your side. 
and he will defend you against the wrongful accusations and condemnations. And the reality is even if other people condemn you, what really matters is whether or not God condemns you. And if you are in Christ, God does not condemn you. Jesus will argue your case. Even if the things you're being accused of are true, let's say that what people are condemning you for is true. You have sinned. You have failed. You have been in the wrong. If you are in Christ, if you confess your sin, if you turn from your sin, the blood of Christ cleanses you. And Jesus will stand on that day and say, yes, my servant did do those things, but I've already paid the price. So the condemnation does not fall on them because it already fell on me at the cross and I have paid their debt. If you have been condemned by others, judged by others, slandered by others, remember that Jesus pleads your case. He will defend you from wrongful accusations and he will take upon himself any shame and guilt that you have rightly incurred. Freedom from condemnation doesn't come by arguing our case to all the people around us or, or standing up for ourselves. Freedom and comfort comes when we take shelter in the cross, remembering that Jesus is the one who is our advocate, our great high priest, who pleads our case, defending us from wrongful ac- accusations and even paying the price for the sin that we've committed, bearing our guilt and shame. That's encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you. Let's resolve to take shelter in the cross, to find in the gospel a motive to show love and compassion to others. Let's resolve to be humble, to be slow to render judgment on our brothers and sisters, to refuse to speak evil against them and to tear them down, but seek to build up one another in love. Let's allow this right heart of love and humility to be demonstrated in our speech, all to the glory of God, for the joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I am thankful this morning that you are so patient with us because this is a sin that many of us struggle with. And it's something that's difficult for us. The the natural bent of our flesh is to exalt ourselves and to criticize others. But Lord, I'm thankful that you love us despite our sin and you sent your son to atone for our sin and to make it possible for us to be changed and to be made new. Lord, our desire is to become like Jesus Christ, the one who is merciful, the one who is loving and compassionate. God, I pray that you would give us a tender heart towards one another and that you would help us to humbly acknowledge that it is not our place to be the judge, to judge according to the law. Our our place is to sit under the law and to obey it. I pray that we would humbly leave judgment to you and that we would obey the commands of this text all for your glory, for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen.